Uh, joining us today on Blurry Creatures is the one and only Fritz Zimmerman. He's an unaffiliated scholar with a BA in history from Purdue University. His book, The Encyclopedia of Giants in North America, is the result of more than 15 years of research that includes pouring over 10,000 historical documents and newspaper archives at one of the country's largest gene- genealogical libraries. He's 13 years of archaeological fieldwork and explored over 700 sites, photographing over 200 mound and earthworks in the Ohio Valley alone, has resulted in the, the discovery of giant's tombs uh, that were photographed for the very first time. He's a discoverer of giant Amorites at Stonehenge and the Ohio Valley. He theorizes the Amorites assimilated with the Sioux, Iroquois, and Cherokee to form the Adena Hopewell Empire. He's written six books. Uh, by our research, includes a comprehensive work on Nephilim in America, Giants in the Ohio Valley, The Forbidden History and Mysteries of Ancient America, and on the connections of all of this with the Native Americans. Fritz, welcome to the show. Great to have you on Blurry Creatures with Nate and myself. We are honored to have you join us today. Yeah, great to be with you guys. Uh, one of the things we like to do, Fritz, when we start our show is we like to ask our guests their thoughts on what we call the gateway drug, and that's Bigfoot. Uh, what is your, what's your take on the phenomena, and, and do you find any connection to your research uh, on giants, the Nephilim, portals, etc.? Do you see any connection, and what are your thoughts on, on Bigfoot in general? I don't go into Bigfoot at all in my books. The only theory that I have about Bigfoot, which I do go in in the Book of Enoch, is that in the Book of Enoch it says that the uh, fairies had allied themselves with Satan, and so when the uh, sons of God were being sent out of the hell, heavenly realm and down into hell, the fairies were heading down with them. And then at the last minute, God, for some reason, changed his mind and said that those spirit fairy spirits would reside on the earth and they would take on wherever they landed. So water spirits, wood spirits so i always thought well it's possible that the ones that landed in the deep woods became bigfoot so basically i think that bigfoot is an apparition it's a spirit that you'll never catch one because it's basically a ghost that can manifest itself as looking like bigfoot and that would explain I'm not a Bigfoot show watcher or anything, but I've seen enough of them where Bigfoot will be in front of them, then behind them, then on the side of them. And so it seems to have the attributions more of a spirit than an actual 800-pound gorilla running around in the woods. Do you think that this, when people see lights in the woods, because a lot of people see lights, is that associated with the fairies? Possibly. No entities of some sort, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because lots of people see uh, the lights. They're like glowing. They're like the size of softballs, and they kind of glow in and out when they see Bigfoot in the forest. People on the flesh and blood side of the argument don't know what to do with those kinds of things. But your take is they're supernatural. We talk about Bigfoot a lot on this show, and we're trying to figure out what it is. Yeah, until they shoot one and I see an actual Bigfoot, I'm going to go with the uh, spirit realm. Yeah, first, that's the way I've been leaning too. Honestly, if we kind of go through this, is that we've had some guests on the show that really believe that Bigfoot is a uh, is an animal, it's the animal that eats and poops and you know does those things. But I'm kind of leaning towards what you're saying in the sense that there are a lot of stories about footprints that just lead to nothing and Bigfoot disappearing in front of people's eyes in their encounters. And it seems sort of odd for that a that a mammal, a giant ape-like hominoid mammal would just be able to disappear or you know the footprints would go essentially into thin air seems to have something at least that and i know i don't know where nate is i nate's all over the place but a lot a lot of times he's uh, <laughs> he, he he likes to think bigfoot is a you know is like harry and the henderson's out there and we're just waiting for him to jump in our station wagon no i'm half i'm half i think it's a little bit of both so okay yeah so so fritz you uh you got into this from what I, my uh, research you were making a documentary and you kind of stumbled into this realm of the unexplained, and then you sort of, like any documentarian, it takes several years 
to make a film, let alone do the research, let alone edit it, put it, put it to music and put it out there. Is that the story of how you got into the Giants in North America and the Nephilim discoveries? Yeah, actually, I was in uh, video. That's what I went to school for. Worked for a while as a uh, weekend weatherman at a CBS affiliate. And then I really didn't want to do that. I wanted to produce different things, commercials. And my partner left. And I'd found out about burial mounds here in Northeast Indiana, which you wouldn't think of, or I had never read about anything like that in any uh, history classes that I I had taken. But um, I was going through the county histories, and I found like Noble County had 35, and DeKalb County had 30. Well, we went to all of those. All 35 were investigated, all 30 and. DeKalb County were, was investigated. But as I was going along and I was looking for the mounds, I started finding the giant skeletons. Yeah. So then that took on its own thing of research because, you know, going through every county in Ohio and every county in West Virginia. So the genealogical library that I have five blocks from my house is just the largest collection of county histories so i you know that's where they wrote about a lot of these so the history of noble county written in 88 they'd have a section about antiquities and then they talk about a mound and they talk about some giant skeleton that they pulled out of this mound and so that extended the project well finding all the mounds and going to 700 sites took 12 years and i was pretty much parallel with that of finding all the giants just because i have 50 states, about wow. 100 counties per state. So it's about 5,000 counties to research. So it took a while. Wow. Yeah. How did how do you fund something like that? Uh, yeah, for a while there, I was just working a couple jobs. I think I had three jobs, but I always had to have my weekends free. And then it was in the car and, you know, going to the site. And and a lot of people who get into the Bigfoot or this phenomenon, they, they either see something but it becomes sort of an obsession. We talk about the treasure hunters on our first episode. Do you have that? Do you feel like you have that treasure hunter spirit where you just you can't get enough of this, and you want to like what 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 pushes you every day when you were out there looking at these mounds? What was it in your in your guts that was that was kind of pushing you on every day? Well, I wanted to photograph everything. You know, in Indiana, I wanted to photograph everything. And it was very early on that I was photographing a lot of mountain sites that there was, you know, no current record of. And like I said, they knew of 30 and I ended up photographing 85. So, you know, with all of the resources they had, you know, they really had no clue to the amount of existing earthworks here. And then when I got over in Ohio, there were so many sites that were address restricted and that didn't make any sense to me that, you know, that there should be some governorship that should decide what people know as far as where a burial mound is and where they're not. So I found all those sites, photographed them, uh, gave the histories of them and directions to them. And some of these, you got to keep in mind, are the size of two-story buildings. These are massive mounds. And they're scattered throughout Ohio, but you would never be able to find them because the addresses are restricted. Well, they used to be restricted until I made my travel guide, but now all that's there. So took a lot of time, just took a lot of time to find them. And then, you know, my uh, region, I went as far as West Virginia, Kentucky, Michigan. So sometimes I was looking at going seven, eight hours out into uh where the sites were so hey fritz fritz can you tell us about the process of, of finding these you, you're digging through microfiche are you looking for articles about this and when you find these are are they often on private property or public property because i know that on some of the really you know well-known mounds are actually protected so you can't go into excavations you can't do archaeological things as far as, as digging in these because of you know native american burial rights and all those different things so can you talk about your process, how you, how you find these, and then what happens when you find these, and, and were you able to dig in any of these? Uh, no, I'm 
very anti-dig, so no, I never dug into any mound that I found. My 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 purpose was to locate it, photograph it, give any historical documentation uh, associated with it. But how I found those is in these county histories, it would say a large burial mound once existed on the Howard Cunningham farm in Spencer Township in whatever county. So at the library that I have, those old plat maps existed. So I could go back into the 1800s, find the township, find exactly where this guy lived, kind of match that up with current roads, and then that would give me an idea of kind of where that burial mound was. Sometimes they would give a quarter section, which is tough. That's about a quarter of a mile by a quarter of a mile, but sometimes they would isolate it to about a fourth of that where it went. So find the property owner and then go to that site. And then a lot of times we'd knock on their door and say, what I'm looking for. This is history. I'm looking for this burial mound and went from there. So when you find, what's the purpose of finding the burial mounds? If you don't want to dig into them, is it just to say how many we have? Yeah, for there to be, for there to be a real accurate record of just what's out there. You know, like I said, you know, if you go online and put in Indian burial mounds, Indiana, you're probably going to get five. When in actuality, there's 85. Hmm. Wow. And then over in Ohio, if you look and you'll see like, okay, the Serpent Mound, you're going to be able to see that. Newark Earthworks, of course, you'll be able to see that. But there's huge burial mounds all over the state that are address restricted. Like I said, you know, some bigger than two-story buildings, massive mounds. And those needed to be recorded to give people a real look of how much or how many of these antiquities were still out there. I've heard that Ohio Valley has the most mounds and records of giants being dug up, that like the ancient Ohio Valley must have looked like a rainforest or some kind of just place where all these beings congregated. I've heard that on several shows. Is that your take on the Ohio Valley? Yeah, we're looking anywhere from mid uh, central Indiana, and then extending into the southern half of Ohio, but also into Charles, um, West Virginia, down the uh, Kanawha River to Charleston, and then uh, northern Kentucky, and a little bit of Michigan, but not too much. But Kentucky, West Virginia, Indiana, and Ohio would be your lion's share of uh, giants. So the last two guests we've had on the show, were, one was Brian Forrester, was our last guest, and then he was talking about a lot of this activity in, in South America. And then our previous guest had over, he's got an account called Giants of Ancient America, and he has over 700 documented reports of newspapers digging up these giants, some as big as 20 foot. What is your take on sort of the conspiracy of keeping this information from the public? Is that what kind of drives you forward is to get this information out there? Do you agree with with that narrative that it's being like swept under the rug? Well, it's not acknowledged by academia. I think there's enough books on giants now. Uh, my Nephilim Chronicles was the first. And then somebody uh, glommed in on that and basically uh, copied half of my book and my accounts, and then they made a book. But anything you get above nine foot, are not in my book. So when people are talking about 24 footers, that's ridiculous. There's no way there were 20 foot uh, people at one time. The largest that I found that really had credible evidence was nine and a half foot. And that's kind of an interesting story because that was down in uh, Coshocton, Ohio. And they dug into this mound and they found five giants that were all about nine and a half feet. And the people that were there, uh, like six or seven of them, that actually saw the bones excavated, saw them being measured, uh, signed a document of, you know, this is exactly what we saw, this is what they measured, and that document ended up in the county history. But anything over nine and a half feet, I don't have in my book, and the 12s and the 20-footers, yeah, that's 
those are pretty much just garbage reports to be thrown away. Really, really. Well, yeah. what, what do you think about? Because a lot of people say that over time, these giants mated with humans or other things, and they just couldn't they couldn't interbreed forever. And slowly over hundreds of years, they got shorter and shorter and shorter. Because you know, in the Bible, it says some of them are as tall as cedar trees. So you don't you don't. What, what do you think about the Bible's account on how tall they were? Is could the ancient ones, the the originals, be that tall, and then just the ones that finally got over here got shorter? What do you think? What do you think about that theory? No, no. I think they were probably about the same size over there as over here. And I think when they said Og's bed, I've read. I think the most realistic it was nine and a half foot, which would more coincide with uh, what I have over here. But when they say you know it's big as cedar trees. You know, I think they just were elaborating and kind of overstating the fact that they were big. But no, I don't believe any of them were were that large. The Tocharian mummy um, would be a good example of the Amorites and the same people that were over here. And I think he was six foot seven, so certainly not the biggest one, but interesting that he had a swastika with him and we find that over in england and we find the uh, swastika in the ohio valley um he had tartan cloths with him of course which we you know eventually we're going to find in scotland yeah and so i think that shows kind of a migration but to look at that guy is really to look at the amorites that they talked about in the bible and then uh, the giants that we find here in the uh, Ohio Valley burial mound. How much do you have to defend the existence of these things? Because it seems like just you know five or six episodes into the giants on, on topic on our show that it it seems pretty hard to deny that they existed because they are certainly uh, thousands of accounts of them. And why do you think it's still so hard to prove that they were even here? Well, one reason is is because the Smithsonian made great efforts that if they found out about a large skeleton somewhere was to go get it and why 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 would they get them because we've heard that a lot why would they what's what are they trying to protect you know what do you think the agenda back then was that all the burial mounds and remains in the ohio valley were of native american origin and anything that would uh, upset that paradigm was to be squelched or hidden or con confiscated so that uh, paradigm would not change. And I think the giants would have done that because their skull types were so much different than any Native American skull. Uh, many of them had protruding brow ridges, uh, massive jaws, uh, elongated skulls that you would uh, associate more with uh, Europeans, especially the ones uh, with occipital buns in the back of their head, which the only other known group that had that were Northern Europeans around 3,000, 2,000 years ago. So the skull types matched up with uh, more European than they did Native Americans. But yeah, they traveled, you know, to Pig's Knuckle, Indiana, where you would have had to take a train and then get a horse and then travel in the country 30 miles to go to a farm where they just dug one up. But they did. And I have a few photos. Um, I posted a couple photos, you know, um, that I sent you and that you'll post up. One on Catalina Island, it says seven and a half, but actually it was seven foot four. Um, you can see the protruding brow ridge on it and some of the archaic features. So the skull types were completely different than any known Native American. So And they had red hair, right? Well, we believe they had red hair. Native American legends say that they had red hair, and some say they had blonde hair. The Shawnee have uh, the legend of yellow hair, which um, they said was the last remnant of these uh, mound builders that they had barricaded themselves on Corn Island and then they ended up going out there and slaughtering um, man, woman, and child, including this leader called Yellow Hair, who they said was a giant with yellow hair. So there's numerous 
Indian legends that I have in both the encyclopedia and uh, the Nephilim Chronicles. I think there's probably 15, 16 different tribes that talked about a race of people with light skin that was once here, but white skin Indians. Now, my theory is, is that the Hopewell, the Dakota Sioux Hopewell, were the, there's the Dina and then there were the Hopewell. But interesting enough, the uh, Mandan tribe, when they were first discovered in the early 1800s, had blonde hair. Some of them had red hair, green eyes, blue eyes. And to me, that is from years of mixing with these Indo-Europeans, and they retained those same European features. So when Catlin went out there, he said they resembled Europeans more than they did Native Americans. So it would have been thousands of years of intermingling with these Indo-Europeans to change their DNA to that point. So when Brian Forrester says he's he's got the skulls in in Peru that have red hair on them, and it sounds like these things were all over the world. Do you like th- what do you think about the different tribes in the Bible? Because there's up to 28 tribes in the Bible of giants. What what's the significance between the tribes? Are they just is it just where they're located? Because it sounds like from my digging that they're all kind of related. Um, big big heads, double rows of teeth, stuff like that. Yeah, exactly right. So some ended up in South America who continued more of the megalithic era with the big stone, you know, buildings that are all perfectly carved. But the ones that came here, actually, it was a two-step process where the Amorites were over and they were here getting copper and then they were over in England getting tin, both of which you need to make bronze. But in England, we have... uh, burial mounds with moats and ditches around them. We have the same thing in the Ohio Valley. We have something strange called the hinge. You know, stone hinge. Well, they know the stones, but the hinge is the earthwork that goes around it. So it's a circular earthwork with an outer ditch and a gateway that aligns to a solar event. Of course, the gateway at Stonehenge aligns to the summer solstice sunrise. And then we find identical hinges over here in the Ohio Valley. So a very odd earthwork type where you would find only in England and over in the Ohio Valley. Again, the mounds were the same. Um, I sent you photos that you're going to post of there's three different skull types. So you're talking about different tribes. There's the corded, Borby, Cro-Magnon, and the generic who had these flattened backs of the heads. Those three types of skulls were found in the England mounds. And then I have photos of the different types of skulls that they found in the Ohio Valley. I put them together and you can't tell the tell the difference in them. And they're strange skulls. So Fritz, I have two questions on those things. The first is copper thing. So there's a there's a fascination or there's a connection with giants and copper. Does it have to do with creating bronze as you kind of alluded to, or is there something else that's Purely just for bronze. Right. I mean, they came over here for the same reasons that the Europeans came over here, and that was to make money. So Europeans have been coming here as early as 7000 B.C. Um, We have the uh, Wendover uh, site in Florida, which is interesting. The guy wrote a 150-page paper on it. He only published one skull. When they did the DNA it didn't match any known Native American tribe. Hmm. So it means these people never intermingled with any other tribe. And so his conclusion was it was a tribe that just died off. But then there was a guy in uh, Europe that looked at the DNA sequences. And the first one was European. He looked at another one. It was European. He looked at five of them, and they were all European origin. So we have these people coming over here as early as 7,000 B.C. I think word got back to the Amorites that there were huge copper deposits in Isle St. Royal, and that's what initially brings them in here around 3,000 B.C., 2,000 B.C., sometime but the amount of copper that they mined out of the Lake Superior region, there's 500,000 tons that are missing. They can't wow. be accounted for for being in burial mounds, surface mines. And one uh, researcher said that it would have taken 
10,000 men working a thousand years to extract the amount of copper um, out of that region. So they weren't doing that. Native Americans made rings and bracelets. So they certainly weren't mining that amount of copper to make trinkets. Right. This was major manufacturing, extraction, mining operation to be sent back west or back east. So it's, it's kind of funny, but I, I in my mind, I'm thinking the seven dwarves that are miners. Because that's the Book of Enoch story. They came down and they showed us how to mine metals and create weapons of war. And they're always obsessed with metals and trying to teach us how to do that. Because, I, you know, a lot of people say that human beings wouldn't have learned how to do this. Do you believe they have some sort of supernatural ability to learn how to, to get these metals out of the ground or out of the earth? Uh, well, the mining techniques were very similar. What they would do is, and I posted one photo of, oh my gosh, I don't know, 5,000, five-ton lobe of copper that they lifted up out of the ground, mm. but they would burrow underneath it and then they would build fires to make it hot. And then on the top, they would pour water on it that would make it crack, mm -hmm. which was the same mining technique that they were using over in the Middle East. And of course, they were going up and down the Mediterranean in Spain and some other uh, copper vines there. So their uh, techniques were the same. But more impressive, and I have photos of this, is the weapons that were being manufactured in the Levant and Babylon around 2000, 2500 BC are these spears with these long tangs sticking out of them. And I have photos of those. And I have a chart that shows the sequence of arrowhead manufacturing. And we make this huge jump from arrowheads that are rather crude to all of a sudden you're seeing these tang daggers, daggers with midribs, and then what's interesting also is, is that 1500 BC, they came out with the socket, which was one of the most revolutionary inventions, not only in terms of weapons production, but in farming. Because now, we still use it today, your hoe is hooked up to a socket. I mean, we use that technology, but it was huge technology in farming, huge technology as far as weapons go. And we see a transition from the tang to the socket in the copper culture. So I have pictures of weapons from over there and weapons from over here, and you cannot tell the difference. Yeah, there's a trans there's a transfer of knowledge there. And and so when you talk about okay, two things here. We talk about the advancement in technology. We also talk about some of these beans went to South America where they did participate in in the building of megaliths. And when we had Brian Forster on, he was talking about the precision with which these these Megaliths were, were created in the technology, uh, which really behooved that these these giants and these giant people had advanced mathematics. Where do you think this knowledge of math came from? Well, we know from, you know, the Amorites, the account of giants in the Bible. I mean, they were a real tribe. They controlled Babylon from 2200 B.C. to 1600 B.C., uh, that was the time of Hammurabi and Hammurabi's laws and all that. And they have found tablets uh, from that era that they call it advanced trigonometry. But because they were on a base 60 numerical system or a base 12 numerical system, somehow trigonometry is easier. But they said that their trig that they could tell from these worksheets that they were doing on clay was more advanced than what we even have today. And interesting enough, like the Newark Earthworks, I was there with uh, L.A. Marzulli, who was doing a uh, documentary. And like you have the circle and the octagon and the circle is 1050 feet in circumference. But if you put a square in the octagon, that's also 1050 feet. And then if you go from the circle to where the huge hinge is uh, at the Newark earthworks, the distance is six times 1050 or the diameter of the circle. That's where the hinge is. And then there's also a square. And if you go from the octagon to the square, that was also six times 1050. The hinge was 3,700 feet in circumference. It's a massive hinge. 
about the size of Avebury. But the square that is about a half a mile away and there were sacred vias that went there, each side is 925 feet. So the total of the sides, 3,700 square feet, match the circumference of the circle. And the difference between the circle that's attached to the octagon and the hinge is the same ratio of the moon. It's called the peregrine and something else. It's the moon when it's little and it's the moon when it's big. But that ratio between those earthworks are the same. So we're out there for a whole day with this surveyor. And I asked him, I said, if I wanted to lay this thing out today, what math would I minimally have to know? And he said, you would have to know trigonometry. If you did not know trigonometry, there's no way you could build the Newark earthwork. So what Native American tribe was using trig 2,500 years ago? Right. And the answer is none of them. None of them. So there's a lot of mathematics. We have uh, circles and squares where the circle is 20, 20 acres, the square is 20 acres. So in that instance, you had to know how to square a circle. So I go into a lot of pi and square roots and how you would have had to be able to build these and it was all advanced mathematics. So same mathematics they're using down south. They're also displaying it within the earthworks in the Ohio Valley. Yeah, so this this narrative that ancient people were dumb, <laughs> it seems preposterous to me that this theory is still pushed out, you know, that ancient people didn't have this knowledge. They did, and who gave it to them? I don't know, but uh, certainly there's physical evidence. Well, you could say fallen angels, but you could go UFOs, you know, so when people say, like, well, it could have been UFOs, you're like, well, we know it was somebody that came from the heavens, so... Right. If you want to go UFOs, it's like, I'm not going to argue with you. Yeah, when you were talking about all this stuff, it was I was thinking, and I don't want to get too UFO crazy, but but crop circles, a lot of people say some of these crop circles are so advanced mathematically. It's not just some guys with a board and some string that they appear randomly, and the math of them is insane. Is there some connection to the hinges and crop circles? Uh, I really don't go into that. <laughs> yeah, I don't either. I, I, I haven't thought about that because much Because I know some of the crop circles are man-made. Sure, you know? some of them are. Yeah, I mean, but some of them, they say they, they pop up, like, within hours, and they're really intricate. But I don't know. That's just what I was thinking, all the weird circles and squares. So, I don't know. What is it? It's alien teenagers just going out, causing <laughs> mischief, you know, putting funny shapes in farmers' fields, laughing about it, getting drunk, you know? Yeah. So funny to think about, right? Yeah. Now, there's another aspect I just wanted to touch on real quick is that there's a professor at MIT, and he believed that the same measure we use today, which is a 12-inch foot, of course, knowing that the uh, Babylonians were using a 12-metric system as well, so when we look at our clocks, we look at our calendars, when we look at anything that's 12, you're basically looking at ancient Babylon. Hmm. But he said that they were using the identical foot. So in Babylon, they had something called Gematra, which was a bit, it was numerology where 666 was symbolic of the sun and 1080 was symbolic of the earth or lunar mother. And then we have three hinges in the Ohio Valley that are 666 feet in circumference. We have more that are 660 feet in circumference. And that's only because they would break it down into 420s and 240s. 420 and 420 and 240 gives you 1080 and 420 and 240 gives you 660. And so they would work those numbers because it was all based on the yin-yang. 
the circle and the square had to be the same. So there was this balance of nature that is, you can see within the earthworks, especially the earthworks where there's a squared circle, where the circle and the square have the same area. So it's that balance of power. But what are the chances of those numbers, Babylonian numbers, being so evident in 80% of the earthworks in the Ohio Valley? if they weren't using a identical measuring system that we are using today. Yeah, about zero, I would think. That's interesting. The numerology thing in in relation to, you know, technology and mathematics from across the other side of the earth. And then bringing up, you know, these specific numbers, it makes me wonder a little bit about, about your experiences around these mounds. Is because these things were obviously these hinges and, and stuff in the Ohio Valley, these mounds were, were set up specifically and situated specifically. Did any weird stuff happen around these mounds? Like any kind of supernatural things or any bizarre experiences around these mounds with all these ones that you've sought out and found and photographed? Uh, yeah, big time. Super haunted. Really? See, the burial mound was constructed and they would put people in it. I mean, some had a few like... You know, there might be one eight-foot guy in one mound. But a lot of them, there were cremations, and the mound would have a layer on it. So they would cremate people, then they would cover that up, and then they would build a charnel house on top of that, and then they'd cremate more people on that. But they were ancestral worshipers, and Hmm. they would go to the mound, and they would worship their ancestors, not as an individual, but as a collective of the dead. So... The mounds were used as portals to connect the living with the dead. So they're portals where the dead can come through. And yeah, you can tell even early on when I was doing this, there's just a strange presence you get when you're around one of these burial mounds. And then I was recently with, and this is in L.A. Marzulli's, one of his... um, his recent videos, we went to uh, Geller Hill, which is the highest point of land at Newark. That's where the circle and the octagon and the big hinge. I was telling you about all the numbers. Uh-huh. Well, what's interesting is, is that if you draw a line from the circle that's connected to the octagon to the hinge to Geller Hill, it makes a perfect isosceles triangle. So it's like this energy coming right into Geller Hill. And we were there with a paranormal team and there were like those stick figures, like you ever watch like Ghost Hunters or Ghost Adventures. They have that one machine where it looks like a stick figure. Those things were around. Um, They have an obelisk where it was saying devil, Satan, witch. And these people were kind of freaked out of just like how much was going on while they were there, they had gone there previous of us coming and they had a temperature drop from 82 degrees to 32 degrees in a matter of seconds. That's 50 degrees. That's crazy. A cold spot yeah. that much that just passed over them. So, yeah, I spent some time with them. And one thing weird was like when we were at the hinge, we just kept getting V. This one machine, it just makes shapes. But it was V, V. They would change it, do it over again. It just kept being V. They even said that they went back about two or three months later and it did the same thing. And I go, well, if you ever had that thing and it, it's like, no, it usually just makes weird lines that you can't make any sense out of. But they went back and it just kept doing it over and over again. V, V. That's weird. Did they have any explanation? Like, like, did they they have any interpretation or explanation for that, or just one of those weird phenomena? Interpretation that V was symbolic of the horns of Satan. Okay. So maybe. Have you had any like um, any other supernatural stuff that's connected to human activity, like um, witch witch doctors show up or anything weird like in the human form besides just paranormal activity? Uh no. There's witches at the Serpent Mound all the time. What do they look like? Generally, you go there, you'll find a brood of them doing doing their conjuring or whatever they're doing in there. There was a couple times where I was younger and took a chance and did some trespassing. And yeah, 
I was a hundred yards ahead of the law and got in my car and sped away <laughs> before they got me. But yeah, I got chased through the woods a couple times by farmers, police, sheriff. Jeez. I never got caught. I love it. So some of those mounds that are in the uh, travel guide are uh, brought to you at great risk. Way to go, Fritz. Way to bring it to us. Fantastic. Sacrificing it all to bring the truth. Life, limb, and spirit there, yeah. <laughs> what about some of these other cryptids that people see? Do you think they're connected to these mounds? Like the Dogman and Jersey Devil and Mothman and all some of these weird creatures people see. Are they connected to these giants and these mounds? And Well, what's interesting is about um, Mothman is that, one, I ran into that, and it was a terrible experience. What? Oh, you, you got it. You do do tell, please. Well, I was across the river from Point Peninsula in Gallipolis, and they had a burial mound up there that had been knocked down. There was a gazebo on it. But, you know, I photographed everything. So I went up this huge lane to get up this to the cemetery that was probably about a 70 foot bluff overlooking the Ohio River. And then I could see the Point Peninsula Bridge. You know, I could see the uh, mouth of the uh, Kanawha River, which the Shawnee called the River of Evil Spirits. If that helps. Wow. Unreal. There was a voice right in front of me that said, nice evening, isn't it? And I was like, what? And I heard it just like you and I talking. And I'm up, I'm on this bluff all by myself. So there's nobody around me. So I kind of blew it off. It's like, well, maybe it's somebody down the hill at the buff. and Maybe sound did a weird thing or whatever. So I get in my car and I get ready to leave. And I have to make a sharp right turn to go back down this hill. And the wheel of the car just jerked to the left. And I missed the entrance. And I thought, well, maybe the car had a pothole and it just janked my wheel, right? It's the most logical explanation of how your car would jerk around like that. So I went around again. And when I got close that next time, I just held my two fingers on the steering wheel. And as I came up to the drive to go down, the wheel turned in my hand. And I went back around again. And oh. now I'm freaking out. I've heard the voice, the wheels just turned in my hand. So I got up to where that turn was to go right opened up my front door, stuck my left foot out onto the ground and stepped that car like two feet at a time until I got pointed down and then headed down. And then I swear to God, I looked in my rear view mirror. Next stop was Charleston. That's where the two hinges that are 666 feet in circumference are. I must've looked in my rear view mirror a hundred times because I swear to God, there was somebody sitting in the back seat. And then the next day, I had no oil in my car. And I thought that was weird. It never burnt, burnt oil. But, you know, when you're traveling, check your oil, you gas up, check your oil. I didn't have any oil in there. I put it's bone dry. Then the car started acting up. It started cutting out and doing all this other stuff. And then I was going from Charleston over into Kentucky to photograph another uh, hinge that was 666 feet car was cutting out. I'm going down I-75 at 45 mile an hour. But I was to the point of, I'm going to this site. If this car dies, I will hitchhike home or whatever I have to do. But I'm not being stopped. And 24 hours after that Mothman thing, it went away. And the car started running fine. And I made it home without incident. And it was just like 24 hours 
with Satan. <laughs> Why Mothman? Why not uh, just like a demon or something? Why do you say Mothman? Well, it was some sort of demon, but before I had gone there, I'd never even heard of Mothman, and I was telling a friend of mine about it, and he goes, well, have you seen the Mothman prophecies? And I said, no, I don't know anything about Mothman. But I watched that, and then I read an account where there were two guys that were digging a grave up there in Gallipolis, and the Mothman was sitting in a tree while they were digging the grave. So he had been seen up there. So was it Mothman? Was it a demon? I'm not sure. But do you know the Native Americans drew uh, in Alton, Illinois, this figure? It was winged. It had a dog face. It had red eyes. It looked, by all particular, like just like Mothman. But they called him Piasu. So I believe Piasu was a Babylonian demon, Pazuzu. You know, that little wing creature and exorcist hmm. yeah. with the yeah. dog face and the wings. Yeah. The fact that the Native Americans called him Piazu and Pazuzu was a Sumerian demon. And the Shawnee are calling the Kanawha River with two hinges with 666, the uh, river of evil. See, the Shawnee Native Americans would never live in West Virginia. They said it was too haunted. Wow. Many ghosts in there. Along the Ohio River, there might have been a few settlements, but going into the interior of West Virginia, nothing. Nobody would ever live there. They wouldn't live in Kentucky either, because at one time they called the Ohio River the River of Blood. So they were terrified of northern Kentucky, and they didn't want to touch anywhere in West Virginia. So definitely some provenance for some evil demon like things going on in that region. You're kind of like an archaeological exorcist trying to dig through this stuff and you have all this supernatural stuff kind of attacking you trying to keep you from doing that. And you're you're kind of a lot of these guys are alone when they're in this business. You find that where you were alone, you were kind of out there doing it by yourself or did you have some friends to do it with? No, I was out there by myself. So sometimes you'd be like a long hike back to these places and I'm what's called a sensitive, I'm not a medium or anything like that. You can kind of feel it. And yeah, it's a bad vibe being around. I bet. The earthworks, not so much. I really never got much out of those, but some of the burial mounds, yeah. Do you think that, do you think that has anything to do with the giants? Do you think this is all connected? I know that a lot of what we find in the Bible talks about the Nephilim and these giants. And when they were killed, you know, these, the spirit was released and, and that's essentially what needed a body more or less. It's a lot of what they talk about with, with the Nephilim. I think that all these things are interconnected. So you're, you're, are we finding that there's possibly real Nephilim buried in these, in these mounds? Or do you believe that just has to do with the ancestor worship and portal stuff that we saw with the native Americans or perhaps the giant, the giant tribes that were there pre native Americans? Well, yeah, I do believe that uh, some of them were the uh, Nephilim or certainly ancestors of the uh, of the Nephilim. And as far as the uh, burial mounds being portals, you know, in front, you know, everyone's seen um, ghost shows where at Mound Still State Prison, which is like what the third greatest haunted place in the world. Well, right in front of that is Grave Creek, which is the largest burial mound in the Ohio Valley. It's 70 foot. There was an eight and a half foot man on the bottom and a seven and a half foot woman on top. There was a little inscription in Hebrew that was uh, with the man on the bottom of it. Yeah. So there you have that. But what I did just to see if my theory was right, I went to two shows that I think are the most legitimate, Ghost Adventures and The Dead Files. And I pinpointed where they did all of their shows. And the majority of their shows are where all the giants are at. Wow. They're in Ohio all the time. They're in central Indiana all the time. They're West Virginia. They're up into New York where there were a lot of giant skeletons. So I just combined the maps and it's like, there's a definite correlation between paranormal activity and where all these burial mounds and where the giants are buried. And that's fascinating because, you know, I've seen this in other things like the missing 411. David Politis locates where people go missing in national parks and forests. It relates to Bigfoot sightings and other supernatural events. And you're here. You're saying these ghost paranormal shows, 
all the activity circulates around all these giant burial mounds, and it's fascinating. And some of the other things I've learned about giants is that historically, if you really dig in and you ask some questions, that I've heard that the demons are associated with the spirits of the dead giants, that they were sort of trapped in this purgatory. They weren't allowed in into the the fourth dimension there's sort of these spirits wandering the earth and the reason they david cuts off the head of goliath is to release this evil spirit from him and you do you associate the some of those biblical accounts of these 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 spirits are connected to the giants the demons yeah because um in the bible it says that your spirit shall be earthbound so it says that they're here that they don't they're not in hell they're not in heaven they're earthbound spirits so they're here so even if you demolish a mound those spirits still roam the ohio valley hmm. so somewhat now the thing with goliath is is it was like way past when all the giants were running around and it says in the bible that he was a remnant of the refugium means he probably had the bloodline but they had been gone for quite some time they weren't running around but he was a remnant of the Raphaim. yeah so so the giants were here and then i mean just to put it in timeline perspective do you think the if you the biblical flood were they here and then the flood happened or were they here after the flood well according to the bible see if we can regurgitate this okay sunday school class there were giants in genesis 6 4 there were giants on the earth in those days and also after that, meaning they were before the flood and after the flood. Yeah, I'm just wondering, when did they migrate to North America from the Holy Lands, you know? Um, I think in mass, probably around 1600 B.C., uh, the same time that the uh, Hittites were taking control of a lot of uh, the Eastern Mediterranean. And then you had the Israelites, of course, you know, that whole story of that they were slaughtering the Amorites. Some people believe that the Amorites had actually already left by the time the Israelites came in. So it was just getting too hot over there. Trade was being disrupted. Uh, the Amorites had lost their empire in Babylon. And where did they go? Well, they went to England and then they came over here. So. That's why we can look at England and the Ohio Valley and see such uh, identical mounds and earthworks in both those spots. So, yeah, you're partially right on that. Do you feel like this, all this stuff, um, you know, we've already heard it from from several of our guests that when you get when you get spooked this bad, it sort of confirms some of the biblical ideas. Has it confirmed a lot of your, you know, does it does it give you some kind of faith? Or does it does it uh, scare you half to death to where you're like, okay, I have to take this stuff seriously? How does it translate into like what you believe about the world, the existence, and and God? And you know, I always considered myself a soldier of God, and I was going to tell a story, and I was going to prove that a piece of the Bible was true. The Genesis six four, there were giants in those days, and if I could just prove one line out of the Bible. I figured that I would have done my job, you know, in a religious sense. And so I always figured that I had the protection of God with me whenever I went to these sites, no matter how spooked I was, hmm. except for at Gallipolis. I don't know what happened there. but I've heard some, some exorcisms where the priest doesn't come back to normal after he's done. It's so—I mean, he's talking— such a battle, supernatural battle that he's that people say that they're kind of in like in a comatose state the rest of their life, that they dealt with some serious evil. That sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's insane. So maybe you were, you were around something real dark that day. Um, I don't know. It's the exorcism stuff's kind of spooky, but you know I think a lot of people on podcasts or in the paranormal or whatever they're so reluctant to talk about you know the Bible and its connections to the giants. They almost don't. They almost want to believe all this supernatural stuff, but then if you start saying, "Well, it's connected to the Bible," they freak out. Ah, don't talk to me about the Bible. And I'm just like, "Well, it's it's connected. You can't deny it, right?" But a lot of the Bigfoot community, they they see these creatures and then they start asking supernatural questions because you know you don't get that from modern science. 
So we try we try to talk about it. You know, it's it's impossible not to bring what you what you believe into the conversation. That's how I feel about it. Yeah, I agree too. I agree too. And you know, in the Bible, it also talks about megaliths. You know, what were they making? They were making these stone pillars, and they were putting libations on them. And Jacob was worshiping at this stone pillar. So we do get some insight into the megalithic world via the Bible, but you ask an archaeologist, he'll be like, well, we really don't know what they were used for. It's like, read the Bible, it'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you know, because they were in that megalithic era, um, building stone circles, megaliths, stone mounds. Yeah. So they were engaged in that, and their stories about what they were doing, you know, when they were there, they were worshiping. There's one quote in the Bible of God says, build me an altar of stone let no uh, tool upon it or something, lest it be ruined. So a whole stone being erected into the ground, not chiseled. And so... Yeah, there's some in Baalbek, Lebanon that are like uh, 1,200 tons. Yeah, that's just crazy. That's, <laughs> yeah. Imp impossible. They don't even know how they... How, you couldn't even lift it today. We don't have machinery that could lift it. In this world, we don't have anything like that. Where that thing lays, it's just... It's crazy. Well, I got one more question for you. Of all the things you've seen, all the places you've been, what's 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 the one place you've been to that was just otherworldly, that you were just like, wow, this is that just stands out above the rest. Um, I gotta say that the one that bothered me the most was Glenford Fort, which is south of Newark, and it's this hilltop enclosure. At one time, it had a five-foot stone wall that went around it. And gosh, what are we talking? 40 acres, 50 acres. Wow. So huge. I forget how long it is. It's got to be Massive. at least half a mile around. Five foot wall. In the middle of this thing is this huge stone mound. And you walk up this pathway and it's all exposed um, limestone. And we all know limestone is somewhat associated with paranormal activity. And then there's a, this, these stones that are parallel that go from a square earthwork that you would have walked up to this thing. But as far as feeling like someplace was just uber haunted, that would have been it. And then I was there with the uh, paranormal group and yeah, that was, it was lighting up like a Christmas tree there. <laughs> this place is so haunted. And yeah, when I was by myself, that was one place that really, really bothered me. I mean, it really really felt like there were eyes on me. There were people in the woods looking at me that I was not alone while I was up on that hilltop. But as far as fantastic goes, you can't beat the Newark earthworks, you know, the circle and this octagon. To give you an idea how big the circle and the octagon is, there is a golf course inside of the circle and the octagon. Wow. Not a part three, a full earthwork. And wow. When you're standing at the octagon, you can barely see the earthwork and the horizon. And so how did they make this perfect? Because the octagon is aligned to the 18.6 movement of the moon. So minimum moonrise, maximum moonrise, there's all these different moonrises. And each one of those slots of this octagon are aligned to this thing. And you ask yourself, when you look at the Serpent Mound, when you look at Seat Mound, you look at these major geometric earthworks, the only way to see them is from the air. So how did they lay this thing out? Yeah. Unless somebody was in the air and could look down, but when you see the enormity of some of these earthworks and you know that standing on the ground you can't appreciate the newark earthworks because you can't see from one end to the other the only way to see it is from the air yeah and that's kind of why i brought up crop circle idea but hey hey luke next time you you shoot a bad game of golf you have an excuse now yeah you that's know? right there's mounds around here it's screwing it's, it's <laughs> screwing up my mid-range irons for sure no actually yeah. we're uh sweeney uh golf course this is my next book that'll be coming up destination macabre and an eerie historic guide to indiana where i'm going to all the sites where there were massacres of settlers and this and that but on the 17th hole there was a torture stake that was there one time so 
people were burned alive. Jeez. That's where their golf game went down, huh? Yeah, that's a double bogey every time right there. <laughs> and that's what I blame it on. It's just like spirit. It's like we're in bad energy here, you know? Oh, yeah. man. Can't, can't get around it. Can't read those putts, man. It just breaks the other way. <laughs> that's a Fritz, different genre that I'm working on. I like it. Fritz, why don't you talk about some of your other books, where people can find you? Yeah, just plug anything you want. Well, if you want to read the most comprehensive book on the uh, giant, and I break them down into Neanderthal hybrids, um, the, the ones that look like Neanderthal, which is almost half the book, 888 accounts, so by far the largest. The book's 500 pages long. Note to anybody, never write a book that's 500 pages long. <laughs> it is just totally insane yeah the encyclopedia um the travel guide to be able to see all of ohio so if you're ever going there uh to visit the mount or you just want to be an armchair uh archaeologist and just peruse through all the photos i'm going to show you mounts that no one has ever seen before because i'm the only one that's uh, photographed them um i have another mysteries of ancient america uncovering the forbidden coming out next month there is volume one and these are just crazy stories of lost in time where uh, we had a UFO encounter while we were in Wisconsin. And then on the way home, somehow two hours went by and we were going down this road, coming out of Chicago, heading south to get on I-30. 30 will take us back to Fort Wayne. We're on this road, two hours go by and we get down to 114 and telling the guy that I'm with, who's a scientist, so he didn't believe in any of this. I said, we got to turn around. We're too far south. It only took us 15 minutes to get back to I-30. And we passed over the overpass that is just lit up like a Christmas tree, as most overpasses are. And there was an airport there with all these blue lights. And we were on the same road. We went down the road, turned around, came back the same road. And I'm like, Rick, we would have seen all these blue lights. Rick, there's no way that we passed unless we were both asleep at the wheel going straight down the road that we would have missed this huge amount of lights to get our exit onto I-30. Unreal. That was really weird. And that is after I was at a site in Wisconsin. And there were these red balls that would come across the sky. They would stop and then they would slowly dissolve. And if you look at UFOs, there's like 10 different uh, videos of exactly what we saw that night. Rick is a scientific guy. He was really shook up. I can only we imagine. About, we had about two hours, you know, before we got back to Fort Wayne. Yeah. And he must have said a hundred times, he goes, there's no way we could have missed that. There's no <laughs> way that we would have missed that airport and that thing. I go, I know. I go, what happened? I go, something <laughs> happened. You know, crazy. we just lost all that time. So I don't know if we were abducted. I don't know what happened, but maybe huh. if there's a group, if there's a t-shirt, I want it. It's like, I've been probed. You know, I want to be into that group of people. You know, I've been abducted. I've been probed. Huh. With no ill effects. That you know of. That you know of yet. <laughs> well, well, Fritz. But I might have a chip in me. Somewhere. Oh, man. Well, you, you get your buddies with L.A. Marzulli, so you can figure that whole thing out with him and, and see what that happens. Man, we, we'll, we'll have to have you back on the show, Fritz. You heard it here, everybody. If you're a bad driver, a bad golfer, or you're or you're late to the party, you got an excuse that you just were driving over some giant burial mounds and jerked the wheel, or your golf game's off, or you just didn't know where you were driving. You know, there's there's paranormal spirits that are causing havoc in your life. Fritz, uh, we appreciate you coming on the show yeah. and uh, dropping some knowledge on us. And you are a, a man of many hats. And you've pushed through, you know, lots of adversity to document all these mounds, see these places. And we really appreciate you coming on the show and schooling us on this stuff. I know it gets it gets paranormal. And a lot of people can't handle that. But I think there's just too much to deny. So really appreciate yep. that. Doctors would diagnose it as a, uh, 
obsessive compulsive personality because that's what it took to get all these mounts. <laughs> I'm sure. I bet. It's a 500 page book. You got you got to be pretty obsessive. Absolutely. Yeah, that and going to 700 mound sites. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, great I got the books done, but I'm truly a sick man. <laughs> Well, we uh, we appreciate it because yeah, you know. Thank you enough, Fritz. This is uh, yeah. all right. It's been, it's been great. Been, talk. It's been enlightening. It's been entertaining. And uh, make sure you guys make sure our listeners check out the books and all of the wild stuff you can find right here in North America, um, not too far from where Nate and I live. We're not going to Northern Kentucky either, but uh, yeah, probably for different reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Fritz, what's your uh, your Facebook page group? people could join because that's where i found you oh gosh i got several of them uh nephilim chronicles fallen angels in the ohio valley is one uh mysteries of ancient america is another one of my uh another one of my pages so yeah one of those two i think the encyclopedia of ancient giants i got a page on that and post stuff so i got three or four on there okay we'll, we'll find you we'll send people your way thanks again fritz and uh, when we uh, be careful driving, yeah, yeah. be careful driving. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Fritz. Yeah, thank you, guys.